Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook. And with me today, as always, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, Simon, what sort of week has it been in the markets? Well, it's probably been a little bit of a quieter week for the investment company sector in terms of performance. So certainly the first four days of the week, they were just in positive territory. It remains to be seen how they'll finish up. But they certainly lagged the UK market. The UK market was up about 1% or so in that first four days. In terms of the sector average discount, well, probably narrowed in a little, gone from about 2.5% to 2.2%. But uh, as always, markets remain incredibly interesting, certainly Fears over higher consumer prices are being aired. In fact, I think I saw this week that US consumer prices jumped in October at the fastest pace in three decades. Uh, And certainly from the UK, we had the latest quarterly GDP data, and that was lower than forecast as well. And with the backdrop of manufacturing and services sector slowing for the sixth consecutive month, um, there might be a little bit to be gloomy about. But a report from JP Morgan did catch my eye this week. Uh, and apparently, they're tipping UK stocks on valuation grounds. So, who knows? They might be right. Yes. Well, I mean, a lot of bad sounding news isn't always bad necessarily for the markets. It might already be discounted. We never know that for sure. Okay. Well, let's move on and talk about what's been happening in the investment trust sector then. And uh, let's kick off with some corporate activity. I think there's we're getting close to tying up all the details on the situation with Aberdeen New Thai Investment Trust and what we now have to call the Aberdeen China Investment Company. So perhaps you could fill us in on what the latest on that one is. Well, that's right. We've been talking about this one for quite a few months now, but effectively this merger has now been completed. So at the start of the week, we learned that uh, Aberdeen New Thai shareholders in that particular investment trust, a large number, I think it was about 73%, also elected for cash, but that cash was capped out at 15%. Uh, So in other words, the cash out was oversubscribed, but there was a rollover into the ongoing Aberdeen China Investment Company. So about £62 million rolled over into that fund, um, which actually saw about £55 million return for its own tender offer. So net Aberdeen China Investment Company probably up about £7 million or so. But basically, shareholders in Aberdeen Utah gave the requisite approval, and that company is no more. It's been delisted. And as I say, that money has been rolled in over into Aberdeen China Investment Company. So that's probably got assets of about 390 million or so, somewhere in that vicinity. So do you think that would be counted as a success from Aberdeen's point of view, or is it sort of above or below expectations? Would you have a, any thoughts on that? Well, certainly in terms of the tenders, I think we talked about the Aberdeen China tender a week or two ago. And I think given the institutional nature of the shareholder base, it's probably no great surprise that both Aberdeen Utah and Aberdeen China's saw quite a high uptake on their tender offers. But look, they're there now. They've got a decent amount of capital, 390 million. And now it's a chance for them to, to prove the mandate and broaden out the shareholder register. It's interesting though, Aberdeen China is at the moment trading on a discount of about 15 or 16%. So that's markedly wider than the discounts or the ratings that we're seeing on the other Chinese funds. So the Bailey Gifford China Growth Fund, that's on about a 1% discount. The Fidelity China Special Situations on a 4% discount. And the JP Morgan Fund probably trading around NAV at the moment. So Aberdeen China is a, is a bit of an outlier in terms of its valuation at the moment. Yeah, so that's going to could be an interesting opportunity. But of course, we don't quite know yet. We don't really have a track record of managing a Chinese investment trust, I guess. And that's the point. It's still to be proved that they can do that successfully. Uh, but the, it is happening. The timing, in a way, you could argue is bad, and where you could argue it's quite good because the Chinese market has performed pretty poorly over several months, and this could be a very good uh, opportunity to get in quite cheaply into a, an investment trust that's exposed to China. No, I think that's right. I mean, a huge amount of chat about China just in general, not just from uh, Chinese equity fund managers, obviously emerging markets in Asia and even global managers probably all have to take a view on China now. I mean, some people have come out and said, we don't think China's investable anymore, particularly because of the regulation that we've seen this year from the country, whereas other people are taking completely the different view and, and believe there are huge amounts of opportunities there. So a range of opinions, it was ever thus. But as you say, we will find out in the course of time whether this is, a, with the benefit of hindsight, an attractive piece of timing. Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, some other corporate activity. And well, surprise, surprise, there's some more goings on in what is developing into another splendid hedge fund 
standoff, and this one is involving our friends at Third Point Investors. TPOU is the ticker, a hedge fund managed by Dan Loeb which has been involved in this tussle with uh, asset value investors, which is representing some other shareholders as well. Uh, And I think we've moved on that story a little bit this week. Yeah, it has moved on. It has moved on. Um, So what we've learned this week is that asset value investors, AVI, came out and said actually they'd requisitioned the board on the 2nd of November to convene an EGM for shareholders to vote on the removal of a director called Joshua L. Targoff, I hope I pronounced that properly, but he's actually a representative of Third Point, the investment manager who's actually on the board. So apparently the requisition, as disclosed by AVI, the board had not informed the market. And so AVI was quite quick to point out that this is what it had done. The board came back and acknowledged that they had received this requisition. And they were minded, despite the fact they believe that the requisition is wholly without merit, but they're going to allow the vote to take place at the already convened EGM on the 1st of December. So there was already a a meeting set up for that date, and that was in relation to the 2022 exchange facility. But now shareholders will have the opportunity to vote on the fate of Joss Targoff as well. So it's an interesting one because back in July at the AGM, when that director stood for re-election, there was quite a sizable vote against him. So I think um, he got just over 11 million uh, shares voted in favour, but there was not too far off six and a half million against. So obviously he survived on that particular moment. But uh, Asset Value Investors has published an open letter, and Tom Trina, I think he's the head of research, is his title there. But as we know, he's a pretty successful letter writer. There's definitely a second career there if he should wish to go down that route. But they did set out the case where this ongoing battle against third point investors is coming from, and why they believe that it's right to now target Josh Targoff. And basically, they are urging shareholders wishing to express the support for the original resolution, which people may remember the board uh, rebuffed, but that was regarding a discount control mechanism. So they're urging those shareholders to vote for the resolution to remove Josh Targoff as an equivalent. So AVI stated that the board's intransience and disregard for good corporate governance in their continued refusal to put our discount, i.e. AVI's discount control related resolution to shareholders has led us to propose this resolution instead as a proxy. So we will find out on the 1st of December how this fares. And I think it's fair to say it's still now relatively unusual for representatives of the management company to be on a board of directors of an investment trust. I think that's fair to say there aren't many left with that particular position. So you might think that might gather some uh, momentum of its own, that particular issue, even though obviously asset value investors hope that it will be interpreted if he is thrown off the board as being a, uh, a vote in favour of their other resolutions. Would that be right? Yeah, no, you make a good point. So certainly when I started covering the sector 20 odd years ago, it wasn't uncommon to see a member of the investment management group represented on the board. And as you say, it's far and few between instances at the moment. One or two, and actually we're going to come on to talk about results where where there's going to be a change reflecting that move. And I think people see now good corporate governance as very important. They see the role of an independent board and not just majority independent, but you know, ideally entirely independent of the investment manager as a good thing. So you're right, AVI are not foolish at all in tapping into this uh, because there may be a number of investors who will feel minded that, yes, this does represent good corporate governance. It's worth noting, though, that uh, Dan Loeb, so the investment manager, has a large stake in third point investors himself. And in AVI, Tom Trina's latest letter, uh, they kind of made the point that really, you know, that stake should not be voted in favor of Josh Targoff. And then made the point that Brevin Howard, that we talked about over a number of months when it came to votes on the future of those particular funds, had taken a step back from voting their shares in that instance. But we'll see if uh, Third Point and Dan Loeb take the same view. Yes, I wonder if they will. (laughs) I rather suspect they won't, but that's just pure speculation on my part. Uh, One other little point comes out of that. I wonder if you can explain that, Simon. I wasn't quite clear about this. There's some sort of entity called Vote UK or something like that. Because uh, one of the issues that I think that asset value investors have with third-point investors is that there are these two share classes. And I think there's a bit of difference of opinion between the two sides as to why these, why there are two share classes and uh, the fact that one of them has more votes than the other. Are you able to fill us in a little bit more on any of that detail? And, and what is this mysterious vote, UK or whatever it's called, uh, entity? What is that trying to achieve? 
I don't have all the details to my fingertips, but again, my recollection is that this goes back to when the um, the investment company started trading in the UK, uh, and it was a way of dealing with the fact there was a large US-based ownership of a UK-listed entity. And we've seen this for a number of other investment companies as well. So back in the day when Harbourvest listed as well, we had issues with that one. And it's to do with the regulation, because if you have a majority of US-based shareholders on the register, then it, I think um, my understanding is it kind of falls into the kind of US regulatory domain, and that's a whole different ballgame. So I think that this uh, entity, the UK entity, was a mechanism to allow third-point investors to operate as a UK company. The issue with that, as AVI have made clear, is the fact that AVI and three other shareholders own about 18% of the share capital, but effectively their shares don't count as much because there's this vote UK entity. And when they had their previous tussle, um, when they requisitioned a, a general meeting earlier, effectively, they asked this entity to back them in this regard, and they weren't minded to do that. So it acts as a you know, poison pill would be the wrong description for it, but it acts as a, as a headwind for an activist investor such as AVI from getting their requisitions and their resolutions through. And meanwhile, just to sort of fill us in on where we've got to, I mean, in the background of this is the issue about whether or not this investment trust can narrow the discount at which its shares have traditionally traded. And I think asset value investors make the point that it's almost always traded at a bigger discount, almost from the word go. So what's happened to the discount? We know it has uh, it has come in a little bit, has it not, uh, in the last few weeks? Yeah, I've got it on about a 15% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average of 16% over the previous 12 months. I mean, it's been in quite a range, actually, over that period of time. So between about a 9% and a 22%. So, I mean, you could say that the trend is broadly positive. But Obviously, that 15% discount is, is wider than the sector average discount across the whole investment company space that we talked about at the start of this podcast. One of the points I think that uh, Dan Loeb and his men have made is that you know it's all very well for AVI to complain about trading a discount when uh, one of the trusts it manages also trades at a discount. So we could come on to that particular trust's uh, results in a moment, but we'll come back to that issue. Let's move on and talk about uh, fundraising. There's been some more fundraising news, not quite so much this week, but uh, let's start with Pantheon Infrastructure. This is a ticker P-I-N-T, a pint. They've done pretty well, I think. Well, they have done well. And uh, obviously, they've got a great ticker, but they've also had a very successful IPO. They raised £400 million, and that exceeded both their target, £300 million, and in fact, the maximum size. So they, they said they could go up to £400 million. The actual book, the amount of demand that they raised was in excess of that. So investors had to be scaled back. And that actually represents the largest IPO that we've seen this year. So I think Cordiant Digital Infrastructure came in at 370 million. So they had the bragging rights until Pantheon Infrastructure came along. So very, very successful. It's also worth noting as well that as part of the deal that IPO investors will receive subscription shares on a one for five basis. And, and this is quite interesting because uh, effectively there are going to be 80 million of these subshares issued and they give the holders the right to convert into ordinary shares at 101p, so 1p up on the IPO price, at the end of June, July, August, next year, i.e. 2022. And the idea is that by that stage, the portfolio should be pretty much fully invested. So it's effectively an additional fundraising up to £80 million, assuming that they're in the money and assuming that investors decide to go for that. So that's quite an interesting feature of this particular deal. But look, I mean, highly successful Pantheon Ventures are very well known in our space through the, the private equity fund. They've been in operation since the early 80s, but they've been investing in infrastructure since 2009. I think they say they've done about 150, 155 infrastructure investments alongside 50 asset sourcing partners uh, during that time. And they were responsible for about $16 billion of assets in infrastructure at the end of March. So this will be on a, a kind of co-investment basis. They're targeting an NAV total return of between about 8 and 10%. Unsurprisingly, the, the dividend will be a, a kind of key part of the investment case here. So they're looking to pay 2P back to shareholders next year in 2022. And then that will go to 4P in 2023. And then it'd be a run on a progressive basis thereafter. But a whole range of infrastructure assets, digital infrastructure, renewables and energy, power utilities, social and transport and logistics. So they've got quite a broad range of infrastructure assets that they can look at for this portfolio. So we talked about the subscription shares last time and saying that uh, to some extent, it's a bit of a smoke and mirrors way of raising money because there's always somebody who has to pay for the fact that you, you, if you end up buying some secondary shares at the same issue price in the meantime. But I guess most people will be thinking, well, these guys have been around, they've done it a lot, and all the, most of the other infrastructure trusts are going to a premium. So they would be thinking this could be a good thing for them. 
But I guess it will depend on how many people hang on to their subscription shares and how many exercise them, whether or not it's actually how much is actually worth to them. Is that a fair way of summing it up? Yeah, I think those are all very fair comments. I think the other thing I would say is as well, that, and we've seen this before, when you launch a fund and it's a, an illiquid underlying asset class and it will take some time to get that money uh, invested, there's always that issue that actually the investment managers don't necessarily need all that money on day one. But because of the way the investment companies work, then that's what you end up with for an IPO. So this is one way to kind of deal with this, that you're effectively assuming that the shares are in the money and investors follow their money and exercise the subshares, that they will be presented with a kind of top up of capital uh, next summer, assuming everything works out for them. So it's an interesting idea. As I said, I haven't seen it exactly like this before, and it'd be interesting to see if it works. Just on a small technical point here for people who aren't perhaps so familiar with this, the subscription shares, if you've uh, taken part in this offer and uh, let's assume it you know, has been successful, you've got these subscription shares, can you actually trade them? I mean, whether, and will there be a market in them? Is, is that how it works? And if so, um, who is making the market in that and who, who might be buying or selling them? So the answer is yes. So obviously the main ordinary share class will be Pint, P-I-N-T, and there will be a subscription share class as well. And that's tradable. So because you're getting this at launch as an IPO investor, some people may wish to sell those subscription shares. And it'd be interesting to see how they're valued. So again, historically, subscription shares or warrants are often valued on the amount of volatility that they tend to have. So going back to the noughties, we saw a huge amount of warrants or subshares issued for emerging market and Asian investment trusts. And they tend to be quite volatile areas of the market, as you know, so they kind of priced up quite well as a subshare. So infrastructure has been a less volatile asset class, but you know they're trying to do something a little bit different here. But effectively, for those investors who, for whatever reason, don't wish to hold on to their subshares, they should be able to, to sell them through the secondary market. As you say, interesting to watch that one. So let's move on and talk about VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities one of the longer names in the sector, which is ticker GSEO. That only came to the market not that long ago. I think it was last year. They're looking to raise some more money, are they? They are indeed. And in fact, it was February this year, I think, they IPO'd and raised just really? over is that? Yeah. Oh, wow. a million pounds. But yes, they're looking to raise more money. They're basically going to have a placing program. They're going to issue shares out at 101 spot 5p. And that represents a 3% premium to their NAV at the end of September and about a 4% discount to their share price just ahead of the announcement that they were looking to raise this more money. Basically, they've got four assets lined up, uh, which are valued in aggregate about £258 million. It's an onshore wind farm in Mexico. It's a hydro run of river projects in Brazil, a flexible power and carbon capture and reuse unit in the UK, and so PV assets in Vietnam. So quite a collection of assets, but they expect all those placing proceeds to be deployed within a six-month period. But the placing closes on the 30th of November. Those new shares, should they be successful, to begin trading on the 3rd of December. But again, interesting to see how they will go with this one. They were trying to raise £400 million back at their IPO in February. They didn't quite make that. As I said, they came in at 240 odd million. So it'd be interesting to see how they go this time. So if they do it at 101.5p, then effectively it's not much different from this initial price. And as you say, they may see if they get to their target or not. The original target, that is. Very interesting. Well, let's move on and talk about the results. We've got a few this week. And we're going to kick off with this AVI Global Trust. That's ticker AGT. And it's probably worth making the point that this is, I think, one of two investment trusts that's managed by AVI, the investors who are making a fuss about third point. So AVI Global Trust had some annual results, as I said, ticker AGT. Well, how have they been doing? Have they uh, have any bragging rights? Can they say, well, you know, look how well we're doing? Well, it's been a very good period for them, actually. So these were annual results to the end of September. Their NAV total return was up 36% in that period, and that compared with a rise of 19% for the MSCI or Country World Index XUSA index, which they tend to look at. The share price return was even stronger, actually, up 40%. And so what happened in this period for them is that they had a, what they describe as a basket of economically sensitive stocks and names such as Secure Income, Reach, Shaftesbury, Capital and Counties, Derwent, London, British Lands. So obviously quite a few property companies in there. Also holdings such as KKR, Oakley Capital Investments, Christian Dior and Fondal Proprietaria pronounced terribly. Um, but these all did very well for them in that time. In addition to that, the underlying portfolio discount, they estimate tightened from about 35% to 29%. 
But it's a really interesting portfolio. It sits in the global sector, but quite different from pretty much everything else now. Basically, they look at out-of-favor companies that trade significantly below the estimated value of the underlying assets. So they have a real eye to value. They're basically focused on three areas, which are kind of family-controlled holding companies. They also look at closed-ending funds, so investment trusts, or what they describe as asset-backed opportunities. But uh, Joe Baumfreud and Tom Trina, the aforementioned Tom Trina, they've been involved in this company now for quite a few years. It used to be known as British Empire Securities, but certainly this has been a very strong period for them. So uh, it has a distinctive strategy. And, and which is the other investment trust that they manage? Yes, it's the AVI Japan Opportunities Fund, which um, came to the market more recently. So again, that, as the name would suggest, that's focused on the Japanese market. In fact, AVI Global has quite a significant exposure to Japan itself. It's about 29% of the portfolios in Japan, but they also have a pure play Japanese vehicle. And again, it's this idea of looking for improving governance there, looking at companies with quite a lot of cash on their balance sheet, so inefficiently run companies, and that kind of shareholder activism type approach that we're seeing quite clearly in the case of third point investors. But I guess the third point investors would still be able to make the point, well, if you're doing such a great job, why are your shares trading at a discount as well? What do you think they would say about that? Well, the discount at the moment is 8% on AVI Global Trust. And it's worth noting that the, the Japanese fund is trading on a, about a 2 or 3% premium. So one of their funds certainly is on a discount, but one of them is on a premium. Yes, of course, the point are going to say that. What you can say is, in the case of AVI Global Trust, they clearly are minded about their discount. And obviously, they do quite a lot of work on the promotional side and provide very fulsome uh, newsletters to shareholders. Look, they've got a value investment approach. And in recent years, growth has clearly been in favor, and that's not really suited with what they do necessarily. Though, to be fair, the underlying assets, they do like those that can demonstrate growth. But but clearly, in a market that favors the likes of Scottish Mortgage or those kind of Bailey Gifford funds, AVI Global Trust might not be expected to keep up with those. But this period, this last year or so, has been a very strong year for AVI Global. And in fact, if you look on 12 months NAV return, they are the best performing global investment trust over the last 12 months, which admittedly is a short period of time, but pretty much alongside Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust as well. That gives us a very good uh, excuse to go on and talk about Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, ticker SMT, which I think everybody knows has been extraordinary success in recent years. Uh, Bailey Gifford managed, of course. They've just produced their interim results for the six months to the 30th of September. Well, what's been the story this year? I mean, last year they had a spectacular year. They made a return of more than 100%, which is pretty unusual for a, for a trust that size. But how are they doing in this year's uh, calendar? Yeah, pretty good, I think, is the answer to that. So the six-month period in September, the NAV was up 16%. That compared with a rise of 9% for the FTSE All World. And in share price terms, even better, actually, share price total return up 28%. I always feel with, with Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, trying to get them to do interim results, that kind of six-month period, you know, it's probably akin to asking the Queen to fill in a tax return. You know, they'll do it, but under sufferance, because they really are about the long-term numbers. And they made the point in the results that over the 10 years to the 30th of September, their NAV was up 1,072% compared to a rise of 275% for the index. So you really get this feeling that they're looking at that kind of five to 10-year period. That's what they would like to be measured on. But in this six months in question, it's interesting actually what's going on with the portfolio because it certainly is evolving. So they made the point that the exposure to healthcare and biotech companies grew from 12% a year ago to 21%. And they've got a strong emphasis on those companies benefiting from, as they put it, the intersection of biology and information technology. And examples are Moderna, Recursion Pharmaceuticals, and Tempus. They also made some interesting comments about China and some of their Chinese holdings, which perhaps unsurprisingly, were impacted by the regulation, particularly the regulation-facing technology platforms. And the managers, uh, so that's James Anderson, but not for too much longer, Tom Slater and Lawrence Burns, they are assessing the long-term implications of that regulation. And holdings there include Alibaba, Tencent, and Maitian. But the bottom line is that the managers remain, quote, both optimistic and enthused. And they continue to identify what they describe as multiple drivers of change, such as continuing digitization of economy, intersection of information technology and biology, and energy transition. Yes, and I think it's uh, worth making the point that people obviously associate them with having these very large stakes in some of the successful internet companies, companies that dominated the internet recently. So the Google and you know Netflix and Tesla and people like that, 
Uh, but actually, the portfolio has changed. Even though they say they're long-term investors, they're not actually afraid to uh, reduce their holdings in some of what were previously their very significant holdings, I think. No, that's spot on. So if you look at the top 10 holdings at the end of September, you know the largest is Moderna. We talked about that. Illumina, not too far behind it. And you kind of go down the list. And you know Tesla is still in there, but that's below 5% of the portfolio now. It was a lot higher at one stage. Amazon's still in there. It's been a long-term, very strong performer for Scottish Mortgage, but that's a 2.6% position, or it was at the end of September. So I think the portfolio really is moving on. Also, a lot of private companies now as well. So you might not necessarily see them in the top 10, but out of the 100 or so holdings, just under half are private companies. And in aggregate, they account for about 19.5% of the portfolio, or they did at the end of September. And in the meantime, of course, if you are a fan of Scottish Mortgage, it's actually been an interesting year because for a while the shares were trading at a discount earlier in the year. I don't think they're still trading at a discount now. They've gone back to a premium and they're probably issuing shares again. So it's interesting. There have been an opportunity, despite that spectacular performance last year, there'd be an opportunity to, to get into the shares again at a discount. Do you think that's just the pattern that's going to happen? Why do you think that it was trading at a discount uh, earlier on this year? You're absolutely right. I mean, during that kind of first quarter of the year where we saw growth companies derated and it was a time when there was obviously the talk about inflation really picked up and the expectation that we'd see interest rate rises at some stage, that would in turn have a kind of impact on the rating of growth companies. And obviously, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is very much about growth companies. So we definitely saw people taking a little bit of a step back. But to be fair to them, they were very active with their buyback program. They bought an awful lot of shares back in that time. So although it did go out to a discount, it was a relatively modest discount. And then, as you say, when markets have kind of settled down, and particularly through the summer, growth has come back into favor. And we see it now trading on a 3 4 5% premium rating and issuing shares. I mean, the other thought occurs to me, of course, is if they've had a fantastic, spectacular 10 years. But if they were to do another return of uh, 1,000% over the next 10 years, I mean, they would be getting a very, very large business indeed. Well, the maths alone would tell you that that's uh, absolutely spot on. I mean, it's clearly the largest investment trust company in the, in the UK marketplace. And it's not only a constituent of the FTSE 100, but certainly when I last looked, it was probably one of the 30 or so largest companies in the UK market. So it's already a pretty significant entity. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one for the future. And of course, there is going to be a management change of James Anderson stepping back, I think, in, in spring next year. Let's move on then and talk about Capital Gearing Trust. Also had results, another very successful investment trust in terms of issuing new shares, at least. Ticker CGT, and they've had their interim results for the six months ending the 5th of October. So Capital Gearing Trust announced their interim results for the six months ended the 5th of October 2021, a slightly unusual accounting period. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 8.2%. And in fact, over the 12 months to that date, they were up 12.1%. And over the six-month period, that compared to a rise of 7.7% for the MSCI UK index. So a decent set of numbers for Capital Gearing Trust. Their performance was assisted by their equity portfolio, and in particular, their property holdings, which represent about 20% or so of the portfolio. They made the point that actually three were subject to bids during that time. So GCP Student Living that we've talked about before that uh, saw a bid and two more beside. And also holdings such as Tritax Big Box REIT, Secure Income REIT and LXI REIT also performed well. Though actually they decided to take some profits from their property plays and recycle their capital into some infrastructure names. So they took new positions in Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, International Public Partnerships and Digital Nine Infrastructure and the renewables infrastructure group. But they made the point that the portfolio is defensively positioned. They've very much got a focus on inflation protection. They are certainly not in the camp that inflation is going to be transitory. And it was quite a contrast to uh, the results of Sunday Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust because the managers noted, and I quote, after a period of impressive returns, the prospects for further significant real gains look dimmer. Well, of course, they actually outperformed the UK index over that six-month period, but they are essentially a defensive trust in the sense that they're trying to avoid having any 12-month period where they actually lose money. So you would not normally expect them to outperform the equity market when it was going up. But of course, the reason people have been flocking to it, and they have been flocking to it, I mean, some of the numbers about how much they've been able to raise through issuing new shares, um, I mean, it has really grown very, very fast, this particular trust. 
No, it really has. I mean, it wasn't that many years ago when actually it was um, a bit family and friends, to be honest. It was quite a small vehicle. It was actually trading on quite a big premium, but they adopted a zero discount policy and uh, basically started issuing shares. Their market cap now, uh, I've got them on about £926 million. So they seem to be heading towards a billion pounds. And in fact, in the six-month period, they issued shares worth about 167 million so as you observe it's, they certainly seem to be popular but you know people will look at capital gearing trust in the same way they probably look at something like personal assets trust you know that idea that they're focused on preserving their shareholders wealth and protecting it and, and trying to grow it in real terms as and when they believe is appropriate but at the moment the focus really is on what they're describing as asset backing and long dated inflation protected cash flows and that's where the infrastructure investments come in Yes, I mean, I can remember when they introduced the zero discount policy. I seem to recall, anyway, that the uh, the market cap was around 100 million, nothing like that. So they've really uh, bulked up the size of the trust. And I think that's partly to do with their potential succession in due course. Peter Spiller, who's the main man at Capital Gain Trust, though he's now supported by two other fund managers, is, I think is the distinction of being the longest serving investment trust manager in the UK market. And, uh, well, I'm lucky enough to speak to him occasionally or fairly often. And, uh, He's as sprightly as ever, but uh, at some point he will retire. So this is all part, I think, of a succession planning regime as well. But in the context we mentioned before, this issue about having directors on the board and uh, Alistair Lang, who is uh, one of the co-managers of the trust, has been on the board for a number of years, but he's stepping down. So uh, what do you think is behind that? Yeah, that's right. And I think Alistair took over when Peter, who was on the board, stepped back and, and Alistair kind of moved in at that stage. Look, I think it's corporate governance. I think people talk a lot about ESG, and that means different things to different people, as we've discussed. But the G element is certainly very important and increasingly so. And I think, as we said earlier, this idea of having independent boards, boards that are entirely independent from the investment manager, I think is important. In the case of Capital Gearing Trust, there has been that representation on there from the uh, investment manager. And to be fair, the investment manager has quite a big stake in the company as well. So there was a natural alignment there. But I think going forward, it does make sense for Alistair to take a step back. Um, And not least because Capital Gearing Trust and CG Asset Management, the investment manager, are quite happy to play the corporate governance card themselves, frankly. So the fact that they want to show that they adhere to best practice, I think is not unimportant. Indeed it is. So that's an interesting development from them. Let's talk about JZ Capital Partners or JZ Capital Partners, I guess they might call themselves, uh, ticker JZCP. Tell us about uh, this particular trust, which has not been one of such a stellar performer, I think it's fair to say. No, that's probably an understatement. Um, We'll rattle through this. I mean, I think this one has just become increasingly specialist now. But effectively, these were interim results for the six months to the end of August. The NAE was down about 4% in that time. And that reflected a loss on a property and also a write down to US microcap investments, although they did have a realization. But really, the issue here is the fund's balance sheet. So for people who are unaware of this one, and it tends to be called Jay-Z Capital Partners, um, effectively, they invested in US and uh, Europe microcap companies. A number of years ago, they got involved in the US property market. That's proved to be pretty disastrous. And they've suffered big write-downs. The balance sheet is quite geared. I think they're about 46% geared at the end of this period. And they've got a question now in terms of how they're going to manage these different debts. Because there's a ZDP, there's some senior debt facility, and there's a loan notes. And effectively, because of the potential inability to redeem debt on the stated maturity dates, With this uh, set of interim results, the director's report disclosed material uncertainty as to the fund's ability to continue as a going concern. So it's certainly a a bit of work to be done with this one. But um, last year, August last year, they changed their investment policy. There are no new investments now. And then the case of realisation mode. So at this point, Mike, worth just quickly mentioning that in the Moneymakers Circle this week, we're doing a profile of Martin Curry Global Portfolio. Obviously, as its name suggests, it's in the global sector. And also have a very interesting interview with Georgina Britton, who is the manager of the JP Morgan Smaller Companies and JP Morgan Midcap Investment Trust. There's some very interesting things to say about the UK market and the smaller companies in particular. Uh, and this is coming at a time when a lot of the shares in smaller company investment trusts are trading at uh, what is relatively wide discounts, at least in more recent times. So that's a uh, Uh, Maybe of interest to those of you who aren't yet familiar with the Moneymakers Circle. We'll move on and talk now about UK investment trust results. Let's kick off with Fidelity's Special Values, ticker 
FSV, which has a, a value approach. And they've just produced their latest annual figures. And of course, they've been uh, performing much more strongly in the last year than they did uh, before that, I think. You're spot on there. In fact, the results are quick to point out that this is actually the best financial year in the company's history. And that's quite an illustrious history. It goes back to the the days of Anthony Bolton. But it's been the responsibility of Alex Wright since September 2012. So he's coming up not too far off 10 years. But these were annual results to the end of August. In that time, uh, there was an NAV total return of 56.2%. That compared to a rise of 26.9% for the benchmark, which is the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, though, they were even stronger. Share price total return was up 73.8% as the rating moved from a 9% discount into a 1% premium. So that just shows when discounts do narrow in, they can really have a marked uh, impact on the performance. The NAV performance was very much a result of stock selection. M&A activity was hugely supportive. In fact, I think they had 10 bids or bids on 10 of their portfolio holdings in the period, which going back to your point about the investment approach is possibly not surprising. It's very much a value contrarian driven uh, investment approach. But despite that strong run, the manager, Sir Alex Wright, believes that the UK remains undervalued and sustainable earnings growth are not reflected in valuations at the moment, particularly in consumer-facing and housing-related businesses. They also increased the dividend by 15% without using revenue reserves. So I suspect shareholders will be quite happy. Indeed, I'm sure they will. And uh, how does this trust now stand in the sector? I think its shares are trading very well, very strongly, as you say. They've been issuing new shares. So uh, how does their um, rating compare to others in this uh, always competitive sector that they're in. So we've got them in the, um, as per the AIC, actually, the UK all companies subsector. They are, as you mentioned, they're on a premium rating, a 2% premium at the moment. And that compares with an average of probably about 4 or 5% discount. So other names in that space, there's the Aurora Investment Trust, which is Phoenix Asset Management. That's on a 10% discount at the moment. You've got Independent Investment Trust, 11% discount. But then you've also got more highly rated names. So we've got Bailey Gifford UK growth in there at just a 4% discount or so. So there's a bit of a range. And in terms of the performance numbers, over the last five years, Fidelity Special Values is up 55% in NAV total return terms. That compares to a rise of 38% for the FTSE all share. But that's probably not too different from something like Bailey Gifford UK growth. That's up 52%, but a little bit behind Aurora. That's up 65%. And actually, independent investment trusts up 80%. And Henderson Opportunities, which to be fair, has a much more kind of mid-small and, and actually a lot of AIM exposure as well. That's up 86% over that time. Yes. I mean, I was going to mention that. It is interesting how the uh, these discounts seem to move around quite a lot in this sector. And uh, as you say, I mean, Henderson Opportunities is on a, certainly on a double-digit discount, I think, and uh, slightly different portfolio, of course, and has some gearing in there as well. So there's, it's always a happy hunting ground, if you like, if you can find uh, opportunities. And uh, as you said, Fidelity Special Values was trading on a, was it on a 10% discount at one point, uh, not so long ago? It would certainly be on a discount. It may have hit 10% last year. Quite a few of them obviously were derated. But yeah, it's averaged about a 1% premium over the last 12 months. Exactly. Okay, so they're doing well. Let's move on and talk about Schroeder Income Growth, ticker SCF which certainly has the same benchmark, but this is annual results to the 31st of August. Yep. So the same period, actually, and they also outperformed. So NAV total return up 34.4%. As I mentioned, the FTSE All Share was up 26.9% over that period. And in share price, total return terms up 37%. So uh, a good period of performance for Schroeder Income Growth, which is managed by Sue Nofka of Schroeder's, unsurprisingly. Um, the NAV outperformance was a result of stock selection, though also gearing provided a, a tailwind as well. Um, that gearing did come down a little bit as a result of the NAV growth, but it was about 8% or so at the end of the period. And actually, they've increased it again more recently. So I think as at the 9th of November, it's at about 13%, which is an interesting level. In the, the results in the 12-month period, though, the fund benefited from, again, M&A activity, and they had bids for 10% of the portfolio in that time. And other strong contributors, including Pets at Home, Intermediate Capital Group, and Hollywood Bowl. But the dividend uh, is an important aspect to this story. It sits in the UK Equity Income Group. So uh, it declared dividends of 12.8p, That was up 1.6% from their previous financial year, and it represented the 26th year of consecutive annual increases. It's worth noting that earnings per share uh, were up as well, but up 3.3% to 12 spot over 8p. So the dividend was uncovered and they used revenue reserves in order to bridge that gap. 
So this one, I mean, also has been trading well in terms of uh, ratings, as you say. I mean, if the oil company sector is competitive, this one is even more competitive. And uh, again, discounts have been narrowing, I think, across the piece in the equity income sector. Am I right about that? Yeah, so we've got the average discount in UK equity income on about between 3 and 4% at the moment, but you don't have to look too hard to see a number trading on premium ratings. So I mean, the ever popular City of London uh, Investment Trust, probably around NAV or maybe a very small discount. Um, you've got other names in there. Well, Schroeder Income Growth that we're talking about now, that's on a premium rating of about 1% or so. I mean, there are those funds in that space that are a little bit wider discounts. So Temple Bar, which employs a, a value approach, that's on about an 8% discount. Uh, and you've got other names in there. Edinburgh Investment Trust, which moved to Majedi uh, not that long ago, that's on an 8% discount as well. All right, so we can move on now and go overseas. We're going to race through some results here. We've got Aberdeen Latin American Income, ticker ALAI. Annual results, same period, to 31st of August 2021. That's right, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 17.4%, and that compared with 17.5% for their composite uh, benchmark return. In Chevrolet, something did a little bit better, actually. They were up 20.9%. That reflected the fact that, that the um, discount came in from 13% to about 11%. But it's an interesting portfolio, this one. It's quite a small fund, Aberdeen Latin America. Its market cap is only about £28 million, but it's a hybrid investment trust in as much as it's a mixture of equities and fixed income. So at the end of September, it was 63% to equities. 37% to fixed income. And in fact, the benchmark does reflect that. As the name would suggest, the yield is an important part of the story. And they maintained the dividend at 3.5p in that time, whereas revenue per share came in at 2.66p. But they've also announced a proposed name change, and it will be the Aberdeen with one vowel Latin American Income Fund. And shareholders get a chance to approve that on the 20th of December. So we move on. We talked about Schroeder Income Growth in the uh, UK equity income sector. What about Schroeder Oriental Income Fund, ticker SOI? Same period? Same period. And uh, the results, a little bit stronger, actually. So NAV total return up 21.9%, and that compared with a rise of 12.3% for the benchmark, which is the MSCI Pacific X Japan Index. Uh, share price total return came in at 21.2%. The discount just widened out a little bit. But yeah, interesting set of results. So as, as they put it here, the performance was uneven. So in the first six months of this period, the NAV was up nearly 21%. But in the, the second half, the NAV was up just 1.2%. And that really reflected the, the market concerns on China, uh, the pace of vaccinations across the region, and the persistence of lockdowns as well. So the reason for the outperformance in that particular year was they were actually underweight China. So if you look at it, I think at the end of September, they had about 10% of the portfolio in China, and that compares to about 38% also for the benchmark. They also don't hold Chinese internet names, which would make sense given that they've got an income requirement and they put it, they've got a quality focus as well. But in terms of the revenue per share, that was up in the period. It went from 9.86p to 10.3p. And in fact, they've increased the dividend as well. So the dividend was 10.3p last year. They've increased that to 10.5p. And that was the 16th consecutive year of dividend growth. Probably the only other thing worth mentioning, actually, this used to be managed by a gentleman called Matthew Dobbs. He launched this fund back in 2005. He retired at the end of last year. And Richard Sennett has taken over responsibility for this one. But he's a hugely experienced investor. I think he's been at Schroeder's since about 1993. So, And he'd worked with Matthew for uh, any number of years. Okay. So now we'll talk about uh, a specialist investment trust. We're going to talk about 3i Group, Private Equity Trust, ticker II. I, they've had some interim results. They did indeed. The interim results for the six months to the end of September and a strong period for 3i. Again, their NAV was up 21.8% in that time. Uh, the share price sort of return, not quite as impressive, actually. I think it was up about 13% or so. But in NAV terms, it was really driven by the private equity portfolio. And the key holding that 3i owns is a company called Action. They're a European-based, I think they call a non-food retailer or value retailer, I think is the description. But the value of that holding uh, was increased from $4.6 billion to $6.1 billion in that six-month period. And that represents 55% of net assets. So that's what's really been driving 3i's uh, results now for a number of years. But in addition to that, they've made some new investments, including some bolt-on investments. And that's really a theme with a number of these private equity houses. Valuations can be quite extended now when they look at new investments. So one of the 
preferred routes that they like to explore is the idea of for their existing portfolio companies uh, making what they call bolt-ons, so uh, buying additional companies and then building out the, the platforms. And that's certainly what 3i has done in the period. They've also made a disposal, which has returned some £345 million to 3i, and that happened earlier this month. It's also worth noting as well, they've got an exposure to the infrastructure business, and that includes 3i infrastructure, uh, and they uh, generated a 5% positive gross investment return over that six-month period. Well, let's mention that next in 3i infrastructure. They've also had some Half your results, they have the same calendar as uh, 3i itself. The ticker here is 3in. How did this separate business of theirs perform? Yeah, so it was a pretty decent set of results again, actually. So they only vetoed a return of up 10.6%, and that's ahead of their annualized kind of return target over the medium term of between 8 and 10%. So, you know, that 10.6 was done in that six-month period. Share price total return, not quite as impressive, actually up about 4.2%. But the portfolio return was very strong, actually. That was up 14.4% and actually was diluted down overall because they were sitting with a bit of cash on the balance sheet. So, they had a number of holdings that performed very well for them in the period. But they have made, they made some changes to the portfolio. So, they've actually completed the sale of four of the five oil storage terminals. They're part of Oyster Catcher, which is one of their key holdings. And they've also initiated a strategic review of a holding called ESVAGT, which represents about 10% of the portfolio. Um, Offers are invited, although no decision to sell has been made. And that's been the pattern with 3i infrastructure, that they have been quite happy to take money off or to sell, to realize some of their existing holdings where they believe there's better opportunities. The flip side of that is sometimes you can end up with a bit of cash on the balance sheet. But certainly, it's a decent set of results for 3i infrastructure. It's worth noting uh, as well in terms of the dividend, always an important part of this asset class. There was a 5-spot 225 dividend, and they're on track to deliver the 10-spot 45p target for the financial year twenty. 22, and that represents a 6.6% increase on last year's financial year dividend. So going back quickly just to uh, 3i Group itself, we've talked a lot about the issues of discounts in the private equity sector, but this is not a problem that 3i's uh, experienced in recent years. But I guess the issue with them is going to be that the success of this uh, company action, this retailer action has been so extraordinary. I mean, the challenge for them is going to be sort of how do we follow that? Would that be fair? And, uh, and why do you think these 3i shares trade at uh, a very healthy premium and have done for quite a long time? while other private equity trusts are uh, you know, languishing on big discounts? Well, I think it's performance-driven. And I think with 3i, the fact that you've got a market cap of nearly £14 billion now means that the type of investors that can follow you and back you is, is obviously far greater than would be the case for an ordinary uh, investment company. So 3i Group has its own gravity. I think action is hugely fascinating and interesting you know, because is it a problem? If it is a problem, it's a very nice problem to have because clearly it has been such a strong performer. It's worth noting that whereas 3 I've been a long-term investor in, in action, there are other institutional investors in the company as well. And one would imagine at some stage they might uh, require a liquidity event. We saw one of those not that many years ago, actually. Um, and it wouldn't be surprising if at some stage there would be another moment. So what would that entail? Well, it could be a number of things. It could be an IPO of action, and that's certainly been talked about uh, in the media over a number of years. But you know, there's a lot of kind of things to consider if you go down that route. In theory, you could see action going through a demerger from 3i Group. I mean, it's a it's a big company in its own right. Again, I would be slightly surprised if they did go down that route. I think they seem quite happy to keep going, follow the course. I mean, as as you mentioned, it's been hugely hugely successful. There's been a new CEO uh, appointed of action relatively recently. And I think they remained hugely ambitious uh, for the group and its prospects. So it doesn't feel that uh, 3i's relationship with action is going to change anytime soon, but we'll find out. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll move on into another sector now, which has also always been interesting, and this is healthcare and biotech. And we can talk about biotech growth trust. And we talked about Scottish Mortgage, how uh, despite it spectacularly uh, last year, it's managed to move on ahead again this year. But it's been a rather different experience for Biotech Growth Trust, uh, ticker BIOG. Obviously, a lot of attention during the pandemic, early stages of the pandemic. Uh, but they've had some half-year results to the 30th of September. And uh, what's the story? Yeah, let's run through the numbers and then we'll explain what's actually happened. So the NAV total return is down 8.3% in that six-month period. And that compares with a rise of 10.3% for the benchmark, which is the NASDAQ Biotech uh, Index. The performance is negatively impacted by what they describe as a market rotation from growth to value stocks in that period and a shift in the biotech sector in favor of the large cap 
biotech names and away from smaller caps. So the majority of the underperformance, so I think 11 percentage points of the 18, 19% of underperformance basically came down to underweight positions in two companies, which is Moderna and BioNTech. Uh, and as everyone knows, obviously, those particular companies have been very involved in the uh, vaccination rollout. The managers, so it's Jeff Shu at uh, Orbimed, they believe that those valuations are extended. They're too high. They think people are kind of overestimating how things will kind of shape out with the COVID-19 vaccine over a number of years, um, particularly as the pandemic in the developed world recedes. So they've moved the portfolio in a different direction. And I mean, it's quite marked, actually. If you look at where they are now, they've got 50%, just over 50% exposed to small caps, uh, which they define as sub $2 billion uh, market cap. And that compares with a 13% weighting for the index. So this is a, a very different portfolio from the NASDAQ Bartek. But it follows two very, very strong calendar years of outperformance. So 2019 and 2020, Biotech growth trust outperforms significantly. It's having a more difficult year this year. But it, again, if people are interested in the sector and uh, how things are shaping up in terms of the vaccine and where the um, opportunities uh, lie at the moment, according to Orbimed, then it's certainly a manager's report worth reading. Well, I should also mention perhaps, uh, I mean, the shares are now trading at a discount. They were at a premium for a while, were they not last year? Is, am I right about that? Yeah, within the last 12 months, they've been on a premium of about 3% or so. And uh, you're spot on, the 6% discount at the moment. And that compares to an average discount over the previous 12 months of 2%. Okay, so we can now talk about Syncona, which is another specialist uh, investment trust in the healthcare arena, ticker SYNC. They've also had half-year results for the same period. How did they do? also struggled a little bit. So their NAV was down 11.4%. And that really reflected the performance of their life sciences portfolio. So again, you're, you're seeing similar themes to that raised by biotech growth. So the life sciences portfolio was down 21.3%. And that was driven by a decline in the share price of a couple of key holdings, Freeline Therapeutics and Achilles Therapeutics. And in fact, they made the comment that in light of the performance of the fund's listed holdings, the approach to how portfolio companies finance themselves is going to be reviewed. And it's worth noting that Syncona is a highly specialised investment company. I mean, effectively, the investment team looked to found, build, and fund companies that are looking to take science and transform that into treatments. So they're really backing companies from a very, very early stage. I think there's about 12 life science companies in the portfolio at the moment. And in fact, they gave some um, details on some of the clinical progress for a number of those names, which seems uh, encouraging. And they gave us an update in terms of how much capital had been deployed as well. But the idea is that they target a portfolio between 15 and 20 companies over the long term and look to back or look to invest between 100 and 175 million in existing companies and, and, and opportunities during the year. So finally, we can move on now to some property trusts. We don't always give them quite as much attention as we do some of the other trusts, but we'll quickly race through some of these. And we'll kick off with one that's been in the eye of a storm recently, which is Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH, uh, where they produce some results, though the results themselves aren't really the main story in town as far as... Uh, this particular trust is concerned. No, that's right. But it's probably worth dwelling on those results initially. I mean, this was an update for the third quarter. The NAV was up slightly, up 0.1%. But it's really what they were saying about the underlying portfolio. And they, they made the point that the financial performance is robust. It's in line with expectations. Rents are received as normal. There's been no impact from COVID-19. They declared their quarterly dividend of 1.3875p. And that was in line with the full year target of 5.55p. And they're still making new investments as well. But this this whole shadow that's uh, overcasting the company from the short seller shadow fall hasn't gone away. And then, you know, they made the point that they're available to speak with shareholders uh, following the release of that market update. And they're going to hold a capital market stay in the first quarter of next year and hoping to alleviate concerns. Right. So basically, the business grinds on, but the share price has uh, gone on its own trajectory. It's gone from a significant premium to a significant discount. We've talked about this uh, in previous weeks. I mean, it sort of stabilised last time I looked around the 90p level. Any particular change since then? It's probably edged up a little bit. I've got it on about 93.1p. That, that was on the close of Thursday. Um, and it's worth noting that they have been active on the buyback front as well. So they have been buying back shares. So in that three-month period I just referred to, uh, 2.25 million shares were repurchased into Treasury at a discount. In fact, the NEV saw a little bit of an uplift as a result of that. 
Okay, so let's move on and talk about Home REIT, uh, ticker H-O-M-E, Home, who've had their first annual results since their uh, IPO last year, in October last year. That's right. So it's a slightly odd period. So it's from the 12th of October last year to the 31st of August this year. They raised £240 million in their IPO last year and an additional £350 million in September this year. So they've been quite successful at raising capital. In terms of their performance, the EPRA NTA was up 7.2% during that period. The NAV total return was up 8.9%. But as you might imagine, this is all about kind of getting the capital deployed. They've acquired 711 properties, and those were valued at the end of August at $328 million, uh, And there was a bit of a, an uplift, about 4.5% or so over the aggregate acquisition price. So the net IPO proceeds are fully deployed. And that was the case within five months. That was ahead of the target at launch. The portfolio is 100% let and income producing. And in fact, 100% of that income is index linked, uh, which is obviously quite a key point, particularly where we are at the moment. Uh, Adjusted earnings per shares came in at 2.9% and they've paid dividends totaling 2.5p for the period. And actually, they're now going to target a minimum annual dividend of 5.5p per share going forward. They also provide an update in terms of how they're going on with the proceeds they raised more recently. 65% of those have already been deployed, and there's a weighted average net initial yield of 5.91% on those assets. Just one interesting point there. We mentioned Capital Gearing had been investing in some specialist property trusts. I'm not sure we invested this one or not, but uh, there is a point here about the inflation linking, isn't there? Because some, in some cases, these uh, property trusts, there are what we call cap and collars or collars and caps, depending which way you want to put it, which actually put a range around the extent to which rents and so on can be index linked. Uh, and that might be relevant if we do go to a period of higher inflation, you know, anything above about... Uh, you know, heading towards 5%, that would certainly be an event as far as these kind of trusts are concerned. Yeah, and you could see the attraction as a result of these kind of assets to to investors, you know, the capital gearings of this world, but actually for a a wide range of investors. I mean, it's worth noting, obviously, that that Home is trying to, as they put it, contribute to the alleviation of homelessness in the UK. But as as part of that, it is targeting an inflation-protected income uh, as well as capital returns. So that's very much at the heart of their premise. Okay, so we've just got uh, three more to cover here. So let's uh, let's take a couple of similar trusts. First of all, uh, we've got Warehouse REIT, ticker WHR, and we've also got Urban Logistics REIT, ticker SHED, S-H-E-D. They both had uh, interim results for a period of 30th September. So perhaps you might uh, compare and contrast these two. Again, very interesting area of the property market. I mean, first of all, Warehouse REIT, their NAV total return was up 15.1% in that six-month period, which is obviously a pretty strong return. The portfolio valuation jumped up 14.4%. And in fact, the portfolio now comprises of about £858 million worth of completed assets. They've also got some development property and land as well, about £49 million worth. But in terms of the numbers, the output, well, the EPRA and adjusted EPS came in at 3.1p. That was up from 2.6p in the first half of of 2021. And dividends of 3.1p per share have been declared in respect of the period. And that was in line with the the first half of 2021 and in line with the full year target of at least 6.2p per share. But 92% of the rent due in relation to the period has already been collected as of the 4th of November. But Urban Logistics, REIT, SHED, as you mentioned, their EPRA NTA was up about 7.9%. So their portfolio uh, portfolio total return came in at 11.8% as well. So it's a decent sized portfolio. It's valued at £661 million at the end of September and like for like valuation growth of 11.3% over the period. So essentially, there is a lot of demand for these type of property, these logistic uh, warehouses. And in fact, they themselves, Urban Logistics, acquired some new properties, 11 logistic properties, and committed to fund development of six more new assets. So in terms of where they are with their dividends, they declared dividends of 3.25p in respect of the period. And that was in line with their previous half year. And finally, then we come on to regional REIT. We should mention them. They've had a Q3 2021 update. That's a ticker RGL. Uh, and unlike the warehouse and Urban Logistics, which traded a premium, these are, I, I dare say, are trading at a discount. But uh, tell us uh, what their story is now. Yeah, so they valued their property portfolio at $916 million at the end of September, and that comprised of 169 properties. Um, so, you know, quite a large portfolio now. In terms of the EPRA occupancy, that came in at 83% at the end of September, that compared with 86% as at the end of June. 
But again, the update, as at the 5th of November, they've collected about 94% of the rent due for the third quarter. So they're making progress on that front. Dividend of 1.6p per share had been declared for that uh, Q3 period, and that compared with 1.5p per share in the same period in 2020. And the board have said that they're going to target a dividend of 6.5p per share for the financial year 2021. And that's that will be an increase on the 6.4p that we saw last year. And this trusted, this is one that invests in property, commercial property outside the M25, basically, hence the regional REIT name. How does that one trade? I mean, it has quite a significant or did have quite a significant uh, yield compared to uh, some of the others in the sector, as I recall, anyway. Yeah, so the rating, first of all, I've got on about an 8% discount or so, which is probably tighter than some, um, a little bit wider than others. As you know, some of the very specialist names do trade on a premium, but certainly a, a narrow discount you see for one of the more mainstream UK commercial property portfolios. In terms of its yield, I've got it on about 6.9% at the moment. And that compares with probably near to about 4% for those more mainstream UK commercial property portfolios. Yeah, so that's an interesting anomaly there, I think, or potential anomaly. So that's all we've got time for this week, except to say that if you uh, enjoy this podcast and you want to uh, hear Simon and myself in action again, we are appearing on the uh, Mellow Investment Trusts and Funds event on Tuesday, that's the 16th of November, between half past six and seven, when uh, we will be uh, doing a run-up to the archers by talking about what's happening in the investment trust sector. <laughs> Not quite sure what we're going to talk about, but it will be kind of more general stuff than these results, I think. But uh, if you want to join that, uh, that's always a fun event. And we get um, some nice questions occasionally, which we try not to pretend that we don't know the answer to. So please do join us if you've got time. Otherwise, we'll see you again in a week's time. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.